We're in week five of our series through the parables this summer. Today, we're going to be going through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 25 when you get there. Luke 10, 25, and I'm just going to read. You can follow along, and it says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, him meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word for us. So what we see here before we dive in is that trying to debate Jesus, trying to argue with Jesus, trying to trap Jesus is always a bad idea. Never a good idea. We often come to Scripture, though, if we're being honest, debating it in our hearts, don't we? Don't we do that in a sense when we come to a hard passage and we go, I mean, I know it means that or I think it means that or I, I, don't, re- I, I don't want it to mean that and I'm going to apply it to my life in a different way. I mean, that would be like me approaching Kyle Gordon and arguing the Cleveland Indians with this brother, right? I shouldn't even assume I know what a baseball is when I approach a brother like Kyle Gordon, right? As Christians, as Substance Church who hold this truth that all of Scripture is God-breathed and pertains to all of life and all godliness, we let the writer of Scripture define our terms for us, right? We let the Bible define our terms. So today, we are going to let Jesus define our terms. We're going to let Jesus define to us who our neighbors are, as well as provide us actually answers to two even more significant questions than that, as we'll see um, when we get to uh, the end. And just so you know, man, it's providential that I'm preaching a message on this question, given the situation on our borders right now, okay? I mean, this message was planned months ago, all right? So no, I, I didn't get an audible voice from God telling me that this would be a a great time to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan. We don't believe in audible voices from God. This is God's audible voice. I just read it out loud. That's God's audible voice for us, right? 
So it's providential, and we want to understand in light of what's going on in the world why this passage has so much meaning and has so much effect on our lives and our hearts. So I'm going to spend a few minutes just unpacking some of the particulars of the parable, then I'm going to finish by explaining the call that Jesus has put on his church to be, listen, a distinctly different kind of community that is representative of his kingdom, which is what we've now described, the kingdom of God, as being the good life with Jesus, okay? So just right off the top here in verse 25, what we see is that Jesus is actually speaking. He's in the middle of teaching and dialoguing when this lawyer stands up. Now, when we think lawyer, it's, it's different than how we think of lawyer. This isn't, you know, 1-800-THE-LAW-2. It's not an episode of law and order. It's not somebody who charged you a lot of money because lawyers and dentists get to do that right? We all know that, right? For some reason. We all pick the wrong vocation unless we're lawyers and dentists. This is a brother who is well-versed actually in Jewish Old Testament law. So when we go back and we think of the first five books of the Old Testament, all the law that God gave Moses, this is somebody who would have known that top to bottom, beginning to end. And what's implied here is that this guy has an aim to challenge Jesus and actually put him to the test in order to kind of trip him up maybe even humiliate him in front of the group of people that Jesus was speaking to. So this lawyer asked Jesus a very broad but very pointed question. He begins by saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, by asking the question this way, we learn something about this brother. We learn that this was a man who had an understanding of God's law being something that he could work toward because what did he say? He said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, like a lot of religious leaders of the day, his knowledge of the law made him think that those who attain or inherit eternal life would do it by a strict adherence or a keeping of the Old Testament law. So they kept every law that God gave to Moses. And not only that, but they added a bunch of laws in addition to those laws. They thought that was the method and mode and path to inheriting eternal eternal life. Now, we just look at that, and we just go, well, that's wrong-o. We know that that's not true. But listen, before your radar of self-righteousness just starts blinking wildly, we should remember how severely that we struggle with this, how severely we struggle with this way of thinking. Because if we're not, we're going to come down really hard on this guy without identifying with him in the way that I think the writer of Luke wants us to identify with this guy. So rather than just seeing, yeah, that guy, that crazy question, this guy who's misreading everything Jesus is saying, let's put ourselves a little bit more in his category, right, before we dive so deeply into our own self-justification, right? Because we all struggle to varying degrees with just that, with self-justification. Because, listen, if you don't struggle with self-justification on any level, your name would be Jesus, That's just how it would be. So this is a question that we may not even blatantly ask like this guy or even verbally ascend to in the quietness of our hearts, but the fruit of our lives, they actually bear the truth of it out in a lot of ways. So Jesus says, look, pal, I added the pal. He said, you're a lawyer. Why don't you tell me? Why don't you tell me what's written in the law and how do you read it? Now the lawyer responds by quoting the law's two greatest commandments from the Old Testament books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he says it right here 
in verse uh, 27. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So you know what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't argue. He nailed it. He got the answer correct. Jesus approves of it in verse 28, and he says, do this, and you'll live. Now, if we just take that at face value, we kind of ask the question, well, wait a minute, what do you mean do this and live? Was Jesus advocating legalism? Was he advocating works righteousness? Was he advocating effort-driven salvation? Well, of course not. It was actually the opposite. What Jesus is doing right here is he's calling the lawyer on his understanding of the passage and in the way that he is meant to live this out as an answer to his question. And it's simply this, that those who truly love God, like the law states, have God's love truly in their heart. And this love for God will additionally be poured out to your neighbor in a way that equals the love, the care, and the attention that we naturally show to ourselves, which is why we want to love our neighbor as ourselves, because there's a natural affection and care that we give to ourselves. And so that's the point that Jesus is making. But then the lawyer does this interesting thing. He kind of slips into what I just pointed out a minute ago, what we all kind of slip into. He wants to justify himself, meaning he wants to find a loophole. He wants to find a loophole. He wants to find a way that this doesn't so obviously apply to him. So he asks Jesus in verse 29, his follow-up after stating those commandments back to Jesus. His follow-up after, after Jesus replies is, well, okay then, so who is my neighbor? And what he's really trying to say, what this brother is really asking in that question is, well, hold on, who must I actually show this kind of love to? In other words, he's saying, can't we just reconstruct that a little bit? Can I just retrofit this command to my level of comfort? to the beliefs that I've assembled about what a neighbor and who a neighbor actually is? I mean, do you see the assumption that he's kind of making even with the question that he's asking? He's basically saying, hey, Jesus, that whole love God part, sure. I do that in my sleep. But let's be real clear about what you mean when you say neighbor. He was looking for a, a loophole. He was looking for a way around, which was a pretty clear teaching in Old Testament law, which was that the Israelites were to take care of strangers. They were to take care of people that even weren't part of their tribe when they came in to the nation of Israel. That was a direct command from the Lord that hadn't changed in the thousands of years. But this brother, as somebody who was very, very familiar with the law, was saying, but does it? But, but does it, do I actually have to go straight through or can I go around? Now, this crazy thing happened to me one time. I was at this amusement park one time in New York. Uh, it's too much to get into it, but I was playing a, it's probably hard to believe from what you just saw, but I was playing a concert. It was a long time ago, right? Um, yeah, I know, it's crazy, right, to think about that. That voice, somebody wanted to hear that. No, but I was playing a concert. And um, so we pull up to this amusement park. And it's confusing, and there's all these people there, and they're having this big, you know, concert event. And we're, you know, we're just one of the, the, I'm just one of the artists there. And so we pull up, and the guy says, hey, what I need you to do is just drive, see that tent over there? Drive all the way over to that tent. And I said, well, okay, but like the amusement park's all right here, and the tent's over there. And he's like, right, go to the tent. I'm like, go around to the tent? He goes, go to the tent. And I went, okay. 
So literally, me and my crew get in the car, and we start, I don't, we didn't know what to do. So we start driving through the amusement park. <laughs> so we're about 20 feet in, and literally, you would have thought that like we were driving some car that was like filled with explosives and everything because this entire security team, I mean, it felt like they descended from the sky all Marvel comic style, landed on our car, literally had us get out. I mean, I thought they were going to arrest us. They said, what are you doing? I'm like, the, the guy told us to drive to the tent. He said, not this way, not this way. I said, well, this was the most direct route. He goes, it wasn't actually. Loopholes, right? Loopholes. We're always trying to find a way to a place that God hasn't given us to go there. But we do that because it fits our comfort level. Now, again, what did I say a minute ago? I said the law was clear from Leviticus 19, which commanded Israelites were to treat strangers like their own. Everybody that knew the law like this brother would have known that. But notice what Jesus does in his answer. Jesus doesn't make a list of qualified neighbors. He doesn't do that. He doesn't break out a list. He tells him a parable which we just read, and I'm going to summarize for us. He says, a man was traveling to Jericho, which was a town about 17 miles from Jerusalem, and robbers attacked him. I actually talked to Pastor Jeff Powell last night, and he was saying he's been on that road, and he said if you could see that road in person, it's this really cavernous, uh, crazy kind of passage that would have been easy for people traveling through to be taken advantage of by people that were kind of laying in wait to ambush. Um, now, again, we got to remember this is a serious situation. This is not just a bunch of men with, you know, Zorro masks and striped shirts who look like the Hamburglar, right? Hold him at gunpoint, take his money, and then go on their merry way, right? That's how we kind of think about these things because we've been watching Cowboys and Indians movies for so much of our lives. This is an assault, right? There is a motive here to murder. You see what it says? They strip his clothing. They beat him. They leave him half dead. These are violent men. These are violent men who waited to ambush this man on a road that offered no protection for him since he was by himself. So the man just lays there. The attack happens. He lays there. He's severely injured. He's unable to move. He's bleeding out all over the road. He needs medical attention. And remember the time that we're talking about, the era that we're talking about. There's no ambulances, right? There's no way to call 911 on his cell phone, right? There's no goasis on the corner with portable first aid kits, Starbucks and Popeye's chicken. Like there's none of that available to him. If someone doesn't find him and help him, he's going to die. It will have been a successful ambush. It's a scenario that travelers at this time in the world had to face. Given that the mode of transportation that existed was this thing called feet, okay? That's where they were at. And then in verse 31, we see the first of three men just come down the road, a priest, then a Levite, and finally a Samaritan, which obviously, it just sounds like the setup to a joke right there, but it's not, it's not. Jesus is not polishing his stand-up routine here. But what we see first is a Jewish priest. Eventually, someone comes down the road, and it happens to be a Jewish priest of all people. Surely he will help, is what you would think, right? But he doesn't. 
Not only does he not help, but he moves to the other side of the road, kind of do this thing where I don't see it, I don't see it. If I just ignore it, it didn't really happen. And part of the reason why is that to come into contact, a Jewish priest, for him to come into contact with a man in this condition, it would have defiled him. It would have caused him to have to go through a purification process to become clean again. So his mind is going to those ends. What am I going to have to do? How many days and weeks is this going to cost me if I even get close enough to this man to touch him? I mean, you can imagine the self-justification process going on inside of him. And then a Levite, it says, passes by. This is another man. He's from the same, same kind of priestly tribe of Israel. And he does the same exact thing. He sees the beaten man. He moves to the other side of the road. And he passes by. Again, think of the self-justification that goes on inside of his heart. When I pass by somebody on the road who has a flat tire, and I have that initial compulsion to say, oh, man, stop. You should help this guy. doesn't look like maybe he has the right tools. Not that Ronnie Martin has ever had the right tools a day in his life, but, you know, I do have two hands. And I, there's that self-justification, like, I mean, should I? Somebody's going to help him. I'm the least qualified person to change a tire in the world. And maybe I'll call my wife. Maybe she wants to drive out and help him. Like, I don't know. You know, I mean, my mind is just spinning, right? So we can understand. I'm saying all that ridiculousness so that we understand the kind of self-justification that goes on through our, our heads and our hearts. But again, let's not forget who these men are. I mean, these are considered men of God, right? They're men of God, and yet they didn't show the heart of God to a man who was on the verge of death. It's significant, the point that Jesus is making. R.C. Sproul, he's a pastor, theologian, actually passed away earlier this year, but he's made this quote. He said, a profession of faith doesn't justify anybody. It's the possession of faith that justifies. So these were men who professed a faith but their fruit didn't match their faith. Look, anyone can claim faith. I, mean, I can walk up to you and claim faith. Look at me, I have faith, right? Look at me, I'm with these people who have faith. I can say that, you can say that. The church is not the church because it merely gathers to sing and to pray and to preach. That is not what makes the church the church. And when the church neglects the weighty matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, as Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. You know what happens? The church plays into the clutches of hypocrisy. That's what goes on. James tells us in his book, chapter 1, verses 22, he said, Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, but he's not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. So picture looking at your face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. Well, how is that possible? Well, that's possible because our faith isn't merely a faith of words, but it's a faith of action that's based on the words of eternal truth that then shape our actions. That has to be the case where we're actually not the church. But look what happens. 
The story just gets so interesting now, especially if you were this lawyer in particular. A Samaritan pops up in verse 33, walking down the road, just like the Jewish priest and the Levite. Now, this was a person that was despised by the Jews. The Samaritans were were a particular biracial people of Jewish and pagan ancestry, and the Jewish people absolutely hated the Samaritans. They had a long history with them. Um, To them, they were people that had been cut off uh, from God, and they were despised. In fact, uh, I mean, you wouldn't see a Jewish person eat with a Samaritan. You wouldn't see him even standing in the, in the, same, you know, the, the same square footage of, of a Samaritan. It was stay away from them at all costs. And the presumption here is that the guy, the brother that was beat, was probably Jewish. We're not told what nationality he is, but we can make some assumption that he was probably Jewish. But this brother, this Samaritan, he sees Just like the priest and the Levite, he sees this beaten and bloodied man. And you know what Jesus says about him? What was different? He didn't just move to the other side of the road, but he is moved with compassion. So they physically, literally moved themselves around other side of the road to walk past, to ignore, to not invest. This brother pauses, and a different kind of movement happens There was a movement of his heart. He's moved with compassion. Now listen, it does not say what the other thoughts in his mind might have been at that moment, all right? Story doesn't mention some of the other places his head may have gone or whether he did did this hot take on the situation and hesitated long and hard before getting involved. I don't know. What we do know is that he didn't try to justify himself. His actions didn't bear that out. He didn't try to rationalize his situation, his actions didn't bear that kind of rationalization out. He didn't consider himself first. He ignored the massive inconvenience that this presented. He denied himself to help save a man who'd been denied human decency. He took personal responsibility. And what does he do? He grabs his own supplies. He binds the man's wounds with wine. The alcohol would have prevented some infection, and then he applies oil, which would have helped soothe some of the pain that this man was experiencing him. And then not only that, but he just keeps going a step further. He transports him on his horse to a safe haven, to an inn, to somebody that would be able to take care of him while he uh, rehabilitates. And not only that, but he pays his bills. And he says, hey, whatever is left over, I'll come by at a later date and I'm good for it. My credit is good with you. He provides for this man. So we we need to see what's happening here. He didn't try to alleviate his guilt. He didn't just try to drop some cash in the guy's pocket and say, you know, try to go get yourself some help, brother. But man, I got to keep walking. I have places to go. I have things to do. This dude got involved. He offered his presence. He becomes a friend to a man on the edge of death who would have been most likely his enemy in life. And it cost him. It cost him. How many of you guys have seen that YouTube clip of this dude that they're calling the Spider-Man of France? Anybody seen that? Did you raise your hand, Kyle? I would love for you to come up and explain it, but I'm not going to have you do that right now because the baseball thing has me nervous. Um, so this is what it was. This, was uh, this just happened a little while ago, but this was this migrant uh, from Mali named Mamadou Gassama. And he moved from Mali to France 
uh, in an effort just to make a little bit of a better life for himself. And what happened was he walked up to this apartment building and there was a four-year-old that was dangling three stories up. And you got a, so picture, a, you know, sort of the, you know, the, an apartment building and you got like the porch and somehow a four-year-old climbed over like four-year-olds tend to do, right? And he's just dangling, holding on and there's nobody there to help him. This guy spots the kid and literally, if you, and when you get home, you should check it out on YouTube. It's phenomenal. This dude literally, like Spider-Man, he literally runs, he leaps, and somehow he climbs up three stories up the side of this building, and he saves this kid. I mean, just within seconds of him falling, grabs him, pulls him back over the edge. Um, one of those, what we call Good Samaritan moments, one of those heroic moments. And when they asked him, when the, when the news came and covered the story and they asked him, they said, what, what were you thinking? Like when you saw the kid up there, you, know, you have no relationship to this kid. You were just passing by. What were you thinking? This was his quote. He said, I, I didn't. He goes, I didn't think about it. He said, I climbed up and God helped me. That's all he said. That's all he went on press saying. Jesus asks the lawyer in verse 36, he says, which of these three was a neighbor? I mean, is that not the rhetorical question like of the year, right? What's interesting, if we get a little, if we dive down a little deeper, is the lawyer has to humble himself now, doesn't he? In front of everyone, he's forced into an answer he hates to have to give. He hates to have to prop up the Samaritan in the story because it's admitting something good concerning the character of a man he believed couldn't possibly have any character. And what does he say? He says, the one who showed mercy. He can't even acknowledge the guy was a Samaritan. There was so much disdain and hate in his heart. And Jesus simply replies without any qualification, you go and do likewise. That's the charge. That was the charge to this brother. You go and do likewise. So where I think this passage brings us is actually to two more significant questions in our life about what it means to be a neighbor. The question is not really who is my neighbor. In the end, the question for this brother was and isn't, who is my neighbor? The question that we must always begin with is simply, who is my God? Who is my God? That's the question that we begin with. The lawyer hadn't really answered that question in his life, and that's what Jesus was getting him to. Because when God is our God, we stop asking who our neighbor is. We know who our neighbor is right? If God is our God, then God's mercy will become our mercy to show our neighbors, right? Of which there is no distinction according to Jesus in this passage. What's interesting is that the lawyer, what did he originally ask? His original question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, look, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life, but if eternal life has been granted to you, a love for God will grow in you and then flow out from you to your neighbor. See, who is my God will be the first question the church fails to ask 
and answers when it tries to justify its worldly behavior. Just like this guy. So we find ourselves trying to qualify things, asking, wait a minute, wait a minute, is that what he said? Wait a minute, wait a minute, did God really say? That's the wrong question. This brings us always back to the first question, which is who is my God? That's the first of the two more significant questions. Secondly, Again, the original question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oddly enough, the answer is not simply show mercy. In fact, the answer is receive all of God's mercy so that the inheritance of riches you receive from Jesus will reshape your unmerciful heart. And then the question you ask after who is my God will not be who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? And that is the second most significant question that we ask when we're trying to understand what Jesus' definition of a neighbor is for us. Because, you know, it's easy when people are just like you, isn't it? But what about those people who are unlike you? those who you put in the not-my-neighbor category. What's interesting and what's funny about that is that category doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. We don't choose our neighbors, according to what Jesus is saying, but we do choose what kind of neighbor we will be. And the church should always use the definition that Jesus uses for neighbor, not the definition the culture uses. So let us not cloak self-justification in political or religious terminology. You let the politicians do what the politicians do. Our call is to follow the commands of Jesus. That's our call. That's not political. That's our call. God is calling us to something otherworldly to countercultural acts of mercy that religious people feel justified in ignoring in favor of rights and privileges that are far less important than the right we've been given to be called children of God because we've received and believed Jesus. That's what it tells us in John 1.12. Remember, remember this. The priest and the Levite, they felt justified, leaving a man lying half dead on the highway. They did not walk away thinking they'd done something wrong. What had gotten their hearts to that place? What gets our hearts to that place? It's taking Scripture. It's taking the clear and and gracious and merciful commands of Jesus and tweaking them to fit views that we've assembled and we've constructed for ourselves. Jesus is calling us to do what he did, isn't he? Which is to die to ourselves for the life and well-being of others. The book of Micah chapter 6 says, he has told you, O man, what is good 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Being this kind of neighbor is something that comes as the result of an identity that is washed in the blood of Christ. It's never based on our own judgment. When it's based on our own judgment, listen, when that's our criteria, you know what happens? We're going to be real choosy. We're going to be real choosy about who our neighbor is. And we know that because we make those judgments all the time. We're always looking for a clause. We're looking for a loophole. Some way it doesn't quite apply to us. But love, as we see in the case of the Samaritan here, doesn't look for loopholes. The Lord has given a mercy to us that is so great that it even extends to our undeserving neighbor. It's that wide, which is why we should always be wide-eyed to see it. But man, mercy is something significant, isn't it? Mercy is self-denial. Mercy is sacrifice. Mercy is salvation. That's what we see from this. And we happen to be, by the way, the unclean, undeserving, undesirable roadkill that Jesus didn't pass by. He took us in our broken and bloody condition. So, man, our treatment of others must resemble the way Jesus has justified us who were hostile enemies to him. Christ has justified us so that we can love others justly. And he illustrates this by making, of all people, a Samaritan the hero of his story. A guy named Jared Wilson had this to say about the Good Samaritan. He said, making the half-breed heretic the hero evens out the playing field. It makes it abundantly clear that justification cannot come from ethnicity or religion or any other earthly badge of honor, he said. By making the bad guy good, Jesus shows how any loser is ripe for righteousness because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. For who has loved his neighbor? Who has shown mercy more than Jesus? So, who can we be a neighbor to? Well, let's be honest. In Ashland and Worcester, it might play out in a number of, of different ways. We don't have the privilege of um, an incredible amount of racial diversity in our towns. That's just the reality. But we have plenty of neighbors, don't we? We have plenty of neighbors who are unlike us. Plenty of neighbors that come from different neighborhoods, who come from different churches with different lifestyles, with different values with different vocations, with different socioeconomic realities. We have neighbors. We have neighbors. And God is calling us for something that requires self-denial, sacrifice, that might lead to another person's salvation. Let me just end with this. Although Christ is calling us to those things, he is not merely calling us to niceness, okay? I want to be really clear on this because niceness is not the gospel. In one sense, the lawyer was asking, who do I have to be nice to? And oddly enough, niceness is not one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's not listed. Last time I checked, it didn't say niceness in there. And obviously, that's going to shatter the reputation of Ashland, right? And our water tower, right? 
But niceness is different than what we see here from the Samaritan. Niceness is actually more like a veneer. Niceness is kind of like a stain you use to cover a piece of furniture. It looks nice, but it's going to fade. It's not lasting. But mercy, grace, compassion, kindness, those are all fruits that flow from a deep, abiding love for others that can't be faked, right? Because how we treat our neighbors is illustrative of how we understand the gospel. And this is what life under the rule of Jesus looks like for us. People who love God see everyone as being neighbors in need of God's love. And so we take what we have, we take the gifts we've been given like we learned last week, man, we extend those gifts with as much mercy and grace and compassion as we know how. You let the politicians make the decisions that politicians make, we follow a different leader. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy. I pray right now if this passage presents troubling realities in our hearts, we thank you for that. We thank you that it stirs things in us. Lord, as a church, we repent to you. We repent for not being the kinds of neighbors that you've called us to be. Lord, we ask that we would show justice and kindness. Lord, that we would have lives that mirror the Samaritan man in this parable. That we don't walk the other way. That we don't get caught up in things that we can't change. But Lord, we do what's in front of us. We see those who need help. We see those who need the kind of mercy that you have lavished upon us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that kind of love to extend that mercy. Lord, change us. Because we all exist in a place that is more akin here to the priest and the Levite. But Lord, we want you to be our model because of the mercy that you have shown us as undeserving people, as aliens in the kingdom of God. Lord, you came to us and you said, I will show mercy to you. I will sacrifice for you. I will deny myself on the cross for you. I will provide salvation for you. I will heal the wounds of your soul because I love you. God, I pray that that's our heart. And I pray that it continues to be more of the heart of your church, not only here in Ashland, but all the churches that claim your name. So God, convict us. Help us to remember your grace too, Lord, that we will not live these commands out perfectly, but that you give us more grace and you extend us more mercy. And as we receive those levels of grace and mercies in our life, Lord, may they just do something inside of us through the sanctification process that you provide for us that allows us to look out and have very wide eyes for our neighbors so that we can be a living embodiment of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, thank you that you still have so much forgiveness and compassion on our lives, even though we find ourselves in the category of the Levite and the priest more often than not. Lord, you're a good God. You've given us your good word this morning. And these are words for us to live by and to take seriously and to rejoice in. So thank you for that truth, God. Thank you for this church that you build. We pray these things in Christ's name. And together we said, amen. Let's stand.